New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. and go now and go to Innisfree and the small cabin build there of clay and wattles made nine bean rows will I have there a hive for the honey bee and live alone in the bee loud glade and I shall have some peace there I will arise and go now for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray I hear it in the deep heart's core these are the words of William Butler Yeats from a poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree, and serve as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, John Lane. John Lane's writing has been published in Orion, American Whitewater, Southern Review, Terra Nova, and Fourth Genre. His books include Waist Deep in Blackwater, The Woods Stretch for Miles, Chattooga, and several volumes of poetry. He's also published a gathering of his essays called Weed Time, and is the author of Circling Home. He's an associate professor of English at Wolford College. Join us for the next hour as we explore what it means to truly live in one's home place with our guest, John Lane. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. John, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's really great to, to be here so far, so far from home. A big circle. <laughs> big circle, really. So, but actually, you you spent you spent a great deal of time on the West Coast. You you lived in Oregon. I did. I, I lived in um, first in Washington State. I worked for Copper Canyon Press with Sam Hamill and Tree Swenson back in 1978. I left South Carolina. Really, my first trip away from home, except for a brief visit to Europe with a rich aunt once when I was 14. And um, I, I got on an airplane and flew to Port Townsend, didn't know anybody, and met Sam and Tree, and ended up spending a year learning to letterpress print with Copper Canyon. And then later, as I I discuss in this book, Encircling Home, I, I ended up back there um, in Eugene, Oregon for a while. Yeah, yeah it's interesting you mentioned Eugene because uh, there was a, one of the things I, I remember from the from coming home, Circling Home was a, a, a raft trip you took with your friend there. Uh, you got in the, you went in the river thinking it was going to be, oh, just going to yeah. have a light little day out in the kayak in the Willamette. Yeah, I was there for a conference. I was back there to... Um, to um, visit um, Eugene again at a conference called ASLI, the Association for Study of Literature and the Environment. And um, I, I ended up there. A friend of mine had a new canoe with him. He hadn't put in the water yet. 
And I thought, well, I'm a really great canoeist. I've never been in the, in the Willamette, but we can handle this. And so we put, we put in, um, and paddled down through a set of rapids and, um, and we flipped and ended up almost wrapping the canoe around the I-5 bridge abutment. <laughs> and then when I looked up, I realized that, um, the house that I'd lived in there with my, with my ex, my first wife back in the, um, early eighties was right above us on this, this bluff. And so I, I thought, well, that's a little odd. And later on, when, um, when I sat down to, to write this book, I used that, that, um, that as part of a chapter to sort of show this sort of movement between settling and freedom and mistakes you make in your life and the way they come back around and the circle, the whole circle theme. Yeah. Well, it was kind of a metaphor there. That oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And not, and not a friendly metaphor. <laughs> no, you kind of got, got a little wet and cold. Wet, cold, and nearly wrapped the boat. <laughs> and my friend was not happy considering he just paid $1,200 for this brand new Winona canoe. <laughs> <laughs> really? The, uh, well, let, let's, let's go back to Spartanburg where, so, so you, you decided to return home. Yeah, I returned um, back to Spartanburg when I left in the in the early um, the, the the middle seventies after college. I went to college there. Um, I didn't think I would come back. I thought that like most people my age, um, I would go somewhere and land somewhere else. I thought it might it might even be the West Coast, and um, but it never stuck. I'd always go to some place and think. I'm going to plant my flag here, and I'd always leave and come back to Spartanburg. And so in 88, 10 years after college, I ended up back in Spartanburg teaching what I thought was one semester at the college I'd attended as an undergraduate. Um, but that one semester turned into another semester, and suddenly I looked around, and I'd been there for 10 years. I was in a tenure-track position. I'd finally um, settled, but I still was unwilling to commit to the place in the ways that my many of my mentors, Gary Snyder, Wendell Berry, um, people like this would, would say, you have to live someplace. You have to do more than just have an apartment there um, and have a job there. You need to do some other things. And so um, after about 10 years, I, um, I began to to um to put down more roots um i met um the woman that i would marry betsy teeter um and we began to think about um um a house i'd been living out of the back of my pickup truck for almost 20 years um i even when i was living in spartanburg i always um would leave the day after school finished and i would drive west with my boat and my bike on my on my pickup and i would come back the day before school would start so it really wasn't a place that i'd settled in yet um but um about five or six years ago maybe eight years ago i began to realize that um that this is where i'm going to settle happened in an odd way for me one of the things i connect to it was i was asked to write an essay for a book that national geographic published um barry lopez edited it it was called um it was a book. It was a book of place-based essays about. It was called "Heart of a Nation," and um, so um, the editor of the National Geographic's books calls me and says, "We want you to write about a place you love, and we'll send you anywhere you want to go in the entire country that you love, and you can write about this place, and we'll have this essay, and then we'll find a photographer, and we'll do this." And so, so I, I came back and I sat down and started thinking about this. Well, I, I love Port Townsend. I love the Everglades. I love. Um, um, I love Wyoming, the the Wind River Range Ranges. in Wyoming. I love that place. But then I started thinking about this river that my 
family had worked in cotton mills on in Spartanburg County um, that I had never put a boat on. I'd been paddling kayaks for almost 20 years, and I'd never floated on this river. And so I said, well, I'm going to write about the Packlet River. And I called the editor and I said, I've decided what's going to go in the book. I'm going to write an essay about the Packlet River. Pause. (laughs) Um, Oh, really? Yeah, I'm going to write about going down the Packlet River with Betsy and Russell, and we're going to write about the cotton mills and the pollution and the, and, um, and, and the way the river's been abused for 150 years, and that's what my essay is going to be about. And she said, think about this for a week and call me back. You can go anywhere you want with this. So I called her back in a week and said, this is what I'm going to do. I wrote the essay. It's called Confluence on um, Packlet River, and um, it appeared in the book, and when the publicity came out for the book from National Geographic, it said, from the Sierras to the White Mountains of Vermont, from Yosemite to the Packlet River. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they, um, they actually called about a month and a half before the book was supposed to go to print, and they said, we can't find a photograph anywhere of the Packlet River. There are none in the clip clip services. And so a friend of mine got to go out and shoot the Packlet River for a day and get a and get a um, get a National Geographic credit out of it. So that was very nice. That's great. But that's yeah. emblematic for me in some ways of of the beginning of the settling process, coming to terms with things in your past and things um, in your place that you sort of have ignored as important. I mean, everybody in South Carolina goes to the mountains and the coast. Nobody goes to the Piedmont where we live for a vacation um, because the Piedmont's just where you live. You go up or down to to um, to do something significant. But right. but I began to think, well what is what is it a what's it like to 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 bore into this place that I'm from? There were some interesting phrases you had you called you said uh, you were living an off road, four wheeling, off the grid, yeah. in the weeds yeah. and you were thirty eight years old. Yeah. And- What's, what was what's going on with my life? Here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know where it where it appears in Gary Snyder. I'd like to find it some sometime. But there there's a there's a paragraph that Snyder wrote once that says that that there's a moment in life. Uh, I think it was in your 30s to early 40s when everything that was positive can turn negative. Um, it's almost like um, everything that was right begins to rot. Um, if you continue to do things in the same way. And I really felt like that I had had reached a point like that. I mean, I realized that I could spend the rest of my life in the weeds and I wanted I wanted to settle. I wanted to see what settling felt like. I'd never allowed myself to settle. Now, Bessie, Bessie was living in town, right? Yes. Betsy had been in town. She's from Spartanburg. She was away for a while after Wake Forest, after she graduated from college. She was a, a journalist. And then she came back to Spartanburg, um, was, had another marriage, was married. And, and then we, um, we met, became friends through a, um, actually a Californian came to Spartanburg in the, in the eighties, bought a building, opened a coffee shop. And um, suddenly we had this little coffee shop to go to, and we all started meeting. All the all the intellectuals in town started meeting, and we dreamed up this um, this um, writers project. We thought Spartanburg was sort of in a depression, an, an intellectual and literary depression. So we were going to create a WPA program 
um, to bring it out. So we created this thing called the Hub City Writers Project. Um, Betsy was out of journalism at that time, raising her kids. And so she took it on and became the executive director of it. And then, um, and I became the publications director. And we, um, we've now done 33 books. But at that time, we really thought, thought we'd only do one and we had no idea we'd end up married. So at some point, you started thinking about building your own place. Yeah. So how did that how did that unfold? I'd been living in rented apartments, mostly basement apartments. We can use these metaphors and go all <laughs> kind of places. I'd lived in three basement apartments in a row, and and um, then I finally got a house. Um, I'm near the college where I teach, and I was living in this house first a rental, then I moved across the street and bought a house in this small neighborhood. Then um, when we decided to get married, we um, we knew we wanted to build a sustainable house. It would be the first sustainable house in Spartanburg. This would have been seven or eight years ago, and um, so we um, we decided to to get married and we decided to build the house at the same time. And so then we we got an architect and he put together this great design of this very contemporary house. Um, we got a builder. First of all, the bids came in on, on September 11th, 2001. So uh-huh. um, the, the, the planes hit the towers at nine o'clock and we got our bids at 11 and they were all double what we had told the architects that we could spend. So we thought we weren't, we're not going to be able to build this house. Um, there were too many um, uncertainties about materials. Spartanburg wasn't ready to do this easily. So um, we worked with the architect and he found a builder that said he could do it. And we made some changes and and we we built this house. And um, when we moved in, that's when I got the idea for this book. I was, um, you'll probably remember from the book, I was sitting, I'm in my study and I pull out, a, I'm a lover of maps. I understand you are too. Um, I pulled out this topo map of Spartanburg, the quad, the, the, um, the quadrangle for the, the area we lived in. We'd built the house in, the creek running through the middle of it. A creek, a creek runs through it. And, um, and I, I said, you know, I've got a month off. The college had just given me this unexpected month off from, from teaching. And I said, I'm going to just draw a circle on this map and I'm going to see what I can what I can find in that circle. Let's and continue. that's what started it. Let's continue just a moment. I'm speaking with John Lane. He's the author of Circling Home. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with John Lane, and he's the author of Circling Home, and we're talking about Circling Home and what that's about and really really understanding where we live and, and, and the value and the importance of our home place, our roots. So I'm just wondering, how did you select where you were gonna where you were gonna move, where you were gonna build this house? You had to 
decide where you're going to do it, a piece of property, land, whatever. We had fallen in love with the creek, the Lawson's Fork, that runs through Spartanburg. And we, we knew we wanted to find land on the creek. First of all, we thought we were going to go a good ways out of town to some property that Betsy's family owned down the creek. Um, big piece of, big parcel, um, and we were going to build there, build sort of a place, and then Betsy's brother would maybe build a place, and we'd have this 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 sort of isolated spot. But then we just started thinking about, well, that's a long way to soccer practice and stuff, you know, way out. So because Betsy had lived, I'd lived in my pickup truck, <laughs> yeah, right. and Betsy had lived in in a historic neighborhood in downtown Spartanburg, and so she was very used to going to work and getting there in five minutes and having the city there, the town there. And um, so she started looking along the creek, and a friend of ours would walk um, in the suburb. Um, and Betsy, we went to walk with him one day, and Betsy noticed there were some lots that had not sold, and they they were right on the edge of the floodplain down to the creek, and this trail was, this this private land was behind them, and people trespassed on it and walked there daily. And, and so we thought, well, this, this might be a good good spot. So we checked in, and the lots were for sale, and we ended up buying one lot, um, and that's where we put our house. And then later, we ended up buying the two lots next to us, going in debt because we wanted a little bit more space. And now we have this amazing view um, down into the floodplain and with no one on either side of us, but we're in the suburbs. So back to the map. Yeah. And you're drawing a circle. Yeah, and the way that the way that I drew the circle, um, I said, well, I can freehand it, and I don't know what it's going to be like, or I'll I'll um, go into the to the um, kitchen and get a saucer and place it on the map and move it around till I think I have the center of the saucer over our house, and then I took a sharpie and I ruined a perfectly good topo when I drew a circle on it, picked up the saucer, and suddenly there it was. I knew how much already I could document within that circle. I knew about the country club. I knew about the old folks' home, the suburbs, the Revolutionary War battle, the old mill, a couple of cemeteries. But I'd not explored any of this stuff. And I said, well, for one month, I'm going to just go out and follow each one of these leads as far as I can. And then I'm going to take those notes and I'm going to try to create a narrative out of that. And I had some some um, I had some books that I loved that I, that used this technique a little bit. Things like Ceremonial Time by John Hanson Mitchell, Providence by Will Campbell, um, the, the um, um, books like that. And so I knew that this was not a completely original idea. People had oh Thoreau with Walden Pond. Sure. People had explored a small area. Um, but but nobody had ever done it about Spartanburg, South Carolina. So that was that was what took me into this incredible journey journey into this spot. So 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 tell us about the place. Tell us about what what it's like. Um, it's as I said before. It's a, it's a spot between the mountains and the coast. It's what's known in the south as the Piedmont. Um, it's a scarred. Um, Landscape scarred for centuries by farming, first agriculture, then the Industrial Revolution. The mills came in and polluted the rivers, and um, and um, now it's a, a landscape that's second growth. Um, n- nothing you'd 
think of as, as first growth or really exciting um, as far as forests go, but a lot of abandoned farm fields, a lot of oak and pine mixed forest, um, a lot of it. Um, it's along I-85, too, running from Charlotte to Atlanta. So it's under tremendous pressure to grow at the moment. And so I had all those things in my mind as well when I was working on this. And the history goes back a long ways. I mean, you, actually, the, the, you discovered there were Clovis artifacts yes. that have been discovered. Yeah, there's a, um, I, I have one of my best friends, Terry Ferguson, is an archaeologist, and um, and he's been in, he's appeared in just about every book that I've I've published, um, books of essays, and so I started talking with him about the area right away, and um, and he said, well, you know, there've been two or three Clovis points found in Sparmer County, and he said, and besides that, there's a tremendous amount of archaic material, and and he started taking me around and showing me these sites that were within three or four miles of the house. And then during that month, one of my friends, Fred Parrish, calls and says, I've got 40 archaic pre-points that I found a quarter of a mile from your house. And I said, well, bring them over. We'll get the state archaeologist up here and we'll talk about them. And so he brings these points over, these beautiful chert points. Um, and my, actually, rhyolite, not chert. Um, and he lays them out on our dining room table. And um, the archaeologist says it's the it's one of the best um, caches of points that he's ever seen from South Carolina. And it was just this bunch of rocks that Fred found when he was horseback riding in 1968. But it's only a quarter of a mile from the house. So, so what is a Clovis point? A, a Clovis point is that early point. Um, that was discovered first in, um, I think, in New Mexico, Clovis, New Mexico. It was the earliest um, um, of those earliest points from the earliest people um, that were the big game hunters um, 10,000, 12,000 years ago. And then the archaic would be that next period forward, say 5,000, 8,000 years ago. So there's very, there are very few um, Clovis points found, but that next area of of habitation, um, there's a good there's a good many artifacts in the southeast and all over. So not just the southeast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. By the time the archaic period had arrived, it was more um, those larger mammals were all gone. But but um, but um, it's it's an exciting period for me. That whole idea of deepening the sense of time in that circle was very important to me from the beginning because most people in Spartanburg think that prehistory probably started with the Cherokee and history probably started with the early settlers in the 1760s. And I knew that right there where I live, where we had built the house, I could push time back five or 6,000 years. And so that whole sense of deepening time was was really important to me. There was something you wrote, uh, we were never entirely settled Time conspires against such certainty. If we're smart, we count instead on the persistence of both perception and memory. Hmm. I wrote that. You wrote that. Yeah, you wrote that. Shall I read it again? Yeah, we read it one more time. In, we are never entirely settled. Time conspires against such certainty. If we're smart, we count instead on the persistence of both perception and memory. Yeah, I, I think I've. I, that was one of those impulses that that created this book and that sent me into it was this sense that around me um, there was this almost this war against against time, against 
persisting in a place. I mean, everything in Spartanburg is pretty much about, you know, they tear down everything. It's been, it's very hard to, to keep historic buildings in check. Or, you know, you, 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 you go by a place and you go, that's a beautiful house. And in the neighborhood where Betsy lived, my gosh, that's a beautiful house. Somebody rich buys the lot, tears it down and puts up another modern house on the spot. And so, um, so I, I realized that, that, Books, in a sense, are a persistence against that sort of loss. And I wanted in this book to, to find some way to build a vessel um, that could hold some of this memory and, and keep some of this loss from draining away. Uh, because I'm thinking that uh, uh, so often the history of a place, it you know, lasts maybe 20, 30, 40, yeah. 50 years, and then it's gone. Yeah. And for future generations, don't even know it was there. Yeah, this has happened um, over and over since my book has come out. Someone will come up to me and go, you know, I had no idea that the country club had that history, or I had no idea that there was a cemetery that goes back to 1770, three blocks from my house. Um, and um, to try to establish that that sense of history in a community, I think, is a, is a task worth doing. Um, although I'm not a historian, um, I, I like using history as a tool for the imagination. So, so tell us about the British soldiers. Discovered actually British soldiers buried on the yeah. There was um, the 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 Piedmont of South Carolina is rich in in um, Revolutionary War history. Of course, they, most people have heard of the Battle of Cowpens, but there were a tremendous number of skirmishes and small battles through the area. And this particular battle happened about a quarter of a mile below our house at a crossing that was sort of like a contemporary interstate crossing of today. I mean, it was a very important creek crossing. And um, there was an engaged engagement um, between colonial troops and and regular British troops and, and um, Tories. Um, and, and they fought down the road, exchanging gunfire. Um, and... When they got to the creek, they had a large, a little bit larger skirmish, and the soldiers were buried there at the creek. But the um, community of Glendale lost um, lost touch with that that tiny cemetery. They actually took the headstones and made curb mark curb um, curbs with them. <laughs> and so the only way you could find the the, <laughs> oh, the graves is is the sunken places in the ground. And I took I took a friend down there the other day to show him these these spots and. Um, the 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 um the legend um is that these um these these Revolutionary War soldiers had peach pits in there. It was sometimes called the Battle of, of the Peach um, Peach Orchard. They had peach pits in their pockets, and trees grew up out of the graves. But there are no peach trees down there now. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, it's a great spot, though. Really powerful, and you can you can feel it's it's the most historic spot in the upstate of South Carolina. I'd say there was an ironworks there. There was a grist mill. Um, there was this battle. Um, everybody said George Washington crossed there, but I guess actually checked back, and he didn't make it that far into the upstate. <laughs> George George didn't sleep there. George did not sleep there. And he didn't even nap there. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing uh, there was this huge, there was this big mill, and, and yeah. one of the things that happened yeah. at some point was uh, the mill caught fire. Yeah, and that was a scary moment. Yeah, it was a scary moment and also a moment we didn't understand um, when it happened. We were, I woke up that morning and I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why there were helicopters circling and 
downstream. And, and it was only when we drove out later to get some bagels that um, I looked to the right and saw this plume of smoke. And I said, the Glendale mill has burned down. And um, it was wrenching, heart wrenching. It was the most beautiful abandoned textile mill in the upstate. And um, what was odd about it, though, and I, I write about this a little bit in the book. I didn't know this was going to happen, but the burning of the mill has opened up a possibility for the college where I teach. We're going to renovate the mill office. We've raised a million dollars, and we're going to establish an environmental studies program on the site. And that would have never happened had the mill not burned down. So in a sense, it was a tragedy, but in a sense, it it opened up possibilities for the future um, the kind of ironic when I just talked about, you know, historic buildings disappearing, but, but this, um, this takes it back to a, a more, um, a more natural state. I mean, it's, it's, it looks now like the shoals when, um, when the first settlers crossed it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about the settlers when we come back. I'm speaking with, with John Lane and he's the author of Circling Home. And there was something else too. There's another really wonderful piece, uh, by Frederick, that you quoted from Frederick Turner about the spirit of place. And I'd like to read that when we come back. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is John Lane. He's the author of Circling Home. And let me give you some couple of websites here. One is um, kudzutelegraph.com. That's K-U-D-Z-U telegraph.com. And uh, John does a weekly column that appears on that site. And is there anything else you can tell us about that site? What else is there? There's all sorts of downloadable poetry and essays that have appeared in other magazines and things. I sort of use it as a, a catch-all site for, um, for what I do. So that's Kudzu, K-U-D-Z-U, telegraph.com. And then there's another website we want to mention, ugapress.org slash circling home. What, what's the reason for that? There's a downloadable PDF on there called Circling Your Own Home. And it's sort of a, a way to do what I did in the book yourself, um, a way to go to the Google Earth and draw a circle around your house that's two miles across, like mine was, and then to begin to consider what, what's happening in that circle. Um, the inspiration for it was that wonderful quiz from the 70s, maybe, where, where are you at? You remember that? You know, where's your water come from? Where's your weather come from? I think it came out of um, um, one of the groups out here on the West Coast, but I always loved that, and I used it in class a lot. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this book, I should do my own version of that and try to get people to think about what could possibly be within this circle around your own house. I've done it a couple of times with students. I was up at um, up at UNC Wilmington a few weeks ago, and I actually, with about 50 students, did this, had them draw a circle, and, and got some really interesting results. So that's University of Georgia, ugapress.org slash circling home. And you can also get there, too. You can get to these sites through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And so there's this piece that was in the chapter called Fred's Cash, and it opened it. it opened it. You were referring to William Faulkner and uh, time for Faulkner is a place where everything is and nothing was. 
And, and you quoted Frederick Turner, uh, it's something called Spirit of Place. And a great, quote, a great conservator repository of all artifacts of the bone and trinkets and even the dreams and deeds of the ancestors for the long, tangled, tragic, and sometimes wildly comic chronicle of the ages could not have been invented for nothing and then thrown into cosmic discard, discard, and then thrown into cosmic discard. The spirits of the departed were substantive. Uh, beautiful piece there. Yeah, really, that, that entire... Um essay is wonderful, that entire book. Um, Turner's a, a fantastic writer. And um, I, I, kept, I kept going back to that as I was, um, as I, as I was trying to figure out how I was going to um, work with these artifacts that I'd found, um, these artifacts of place. I mean, how do you, how do you establish 8,000, 8,000 years in a single place where um, we're, we're just not we're not tuned in to do that. Our minds are not, we're, we're tuned into 20 years or 15 years or 40 years, maybe, maybe your grandparents, that's it. And so, um, as I, as I worked with, with these artifacts and finding these artifacts, I kept trying to figure out how would I, how would I tell this story? And, um, and, and the way I decided to do it was just to try to layer as thickly as I could, um, just the, the complexity of, of, of the present and, and work it back as deep, as deeply as I could. And, um, and then work from there, just continue to layer and layer and layer. Speaking of the ancestors, I'm thinking of, of the, I'm thinking of the native peoples that live there. Um, the Cherokee yeah. and the Catawba, and, yeah. and they came from the north, right? Didn't they? Yeah. Came, they came in there from the yeah, north. Yeah, especially the Cherokee, and that, and the the land we live on is 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 the 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 dividing line between the two tribes. The Cherokee are to the the west, um, in the south, a little bit to the south, and the Catawba are to the east. And the Broad River was known as the dividing line river, and we're only ten miles from the Broad River. So everything that I discovered suggested that. Um, the Cherokee or, or, and the Catawba, neither one of them really lived in that area much. They had, they had seasonal camps, but they did not establish permanent villages there. Um, unlike these people that interest me, the archaic um, period people, they moved up and down river, um, river drainages, and they would spend the, the summer in the mountains and the winter at the coast. It sounds like great life to me. And then this move up and down these, these river drainages and they stayed to particular river drainages. So those groups moving up the broad river onto the Packlet and then the Lawson's Fork where we live probably moved up and down those rivers for thousands of years and came to these same spots for thousands of years. And I love that sense that, um, these people were there, and then they were there again the next season, and then they were there again the next season. It sort of acts as an interesting sort of counterpoint to this idea of settling and building a house with these these migratory peoples. When we first moved there, when we first found the lot, we took our um, son Russell out there with his bicycle to ride, and we um we were standing on a hilltop just right next to where our bedroom window is now, and I looked at the ground. Russell had headed off to ride his bicycle on the creek, down near the creek. And I looked at the ground, and there was an archaic atlatl point at my toe. And I picked it up, and I started looking around, and there were flakes everywhere, little quartz flakes from somebody had obviously been there and had worked 
worked points on this spot right now. It's next to where a bedroom window is now. And then Russell came back and he had this sort of look on his face. Um, something had happened. And I said, what happened, Russell? He said, the weirdest thing happened. He says, I, the dogs were with me. We have these two, had these two dogs. And said, I rode my bike down the creek and I made it to the shoals. And then I started riding back and the dogs were behind me running. And I thought I heard the dogs and I looked to my left and there was a deer running along beside me. As I was riding, this deer was running along beside me, and then suddenly it just darts off to the left. And I've always placed those two events together, the finding of the atlatl point and then the deer running with Russell as a sign that we should build here. This, yeah, it was right. good enough for them, so this is where we should build as well. Yeah, and atlatl, I mean, atlatl. Atlatl was the... Um, the per um, the the forerunner to the bow and arrow. It was the the throwing stick. Um, before the bow and arrow was invented, the the atlatl gave them a little more leverage for throwing a spear like instrument. Right. To, to, so didn't have to get that close to the mastodon. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I met a guy actually, um, um, a, a contemporary guy that I is channeling these archaic people some somehow, and he he is the he's from the upstate of South Carolina, and he is the national champion atlatl thrower. <laughs> he can throw <laughs> one of those things and hit a bullseye from about thirty yards away. It's uh-huh. amazing. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things you do is a lot of is kayaking. Yes. Now there was some there was a trip that you <sighs> you took with your kids. With, yes. With your stepsons, and you had this plan. You wanted to you wanted you wanted to hit some of the rapid water because it was this flood. Yeah. Right. And so it's a great story. So tell us this story. <sighs> well, my older stepson Rob came home one day after we'd moved in, and the creek was flooding behind our house. It was 14 feet above normal, and Rob said, "We've got to paddle it." And it was late in the afternoon. It was winter. It was December. We were all expert paddlers, but I. I knew in the back of my mind that I should probably say no. There's a line in the book that's one of my favorite lines that says that being a, that I found out that day that being a father is mostly about collapsing the rickety structures of teenage logic into short-lived disappointment. (laughs) So I should have said, no, we're not going to do this. But instead, I said, yes, we'll do it. And we went on, we got on the river. We called Betsy. We told her to meet us at the bottom of the river um, in an hour and a half because the river was piling down probably six, seven miles an hour. It was it was huge and high. We'd paddled it before once, but um, nothing bad had happened. So we put on and... Um, you forgot your life jacket. I forgot my life jacket. I've never done this in 20 years of paddling. And I looked down and we were maybe a half mile downstream and I didn't have my life jacket on. And so I pulled the boys over and I bushwhack, bushwhack out to the road, catch a ride with a friend who happens to be driving by and he tells me I'm crazy. Um, go to the truck, get my life jacket, come back, put it on. And we had this perfect paddle for five miles down the creek. We were in sync. We were calling out to each other what to do. And we made it to the spot where the river was the roughest, um, a series of shoals, class four, class four and some five whitewater. And we scouted and we ran that and we ran it perfectly. And then we let down our guard. It was getting dark and I was leading we were floating down the river. We were only a quarter of a mile from the bridge. Betsy was waiting for us. And there was a white oak that had fallen across the entire river. Um, and we all three were sucked under this this log. And we all popped out um, after a terrible five or six minutes of me being stuck in another tree down downstream. I saw that Russell and Rob had survived. And unfortunately, Betsy saw my boat 
go under the bridge without me in it. And she had to run up to a house and try to find a phone, call the same guy that had given me the ride <laughs> to get my life jacket. So they said you were crazy. Said that I was crazy. And um, then we were able to um, huddle up and and do what men often do, which is say, don't tell Betsy. <laughs> um, and so we, we go out, we find Betsy and I'm sure we're okay. And then we tell her the truth. We tell her what's happened. But um, it was a terrible, terrible time. And I felt guilty and I felt, um, and yet it may, it was the closest I've ever felt to those boys um, in the time that I've been with them. Because we, we, um, I was, I was thinking about Joseph Campbell a little while ago. My first, my book about, my book about the river, the Chattooga, sort of uses the separation, initiation, return, monomyth um, for going on a paddling trip. And, um, and this was a lot like that. I mean, there was an initiation. Um, going through that portal of that log was like that. And, um, and, it, and the boys felt like, you know, this was good for me. <laughs> they can even say that. And I'm going, what's good about nearly dying? Um, but it really did make us closer. Um, this and it and it worked. Betsy had fun with the chapter after I wrote it. She kept moving it toward the front of the book. <laughs> she said, "This is the one people should read right away. <laughs> they don't need any of these hiking chapters or anything like that. They need this, need this river chapter." Yeah. So it ends up being the third or fourth chapter in the book. Yeah, <laughs> pretty powerful story, actually. Yeah. The uh, another person you quoted is uh, someone that we had the opportunity to interview, Paul Shepard. Oh yeah. Um, and the quote was, we must begin by remembering history. Yes. We must begin by remembering yes. history. Yes. And that's the whole book for me. Um, I know the history's there. Nobody knows it. Um, that people know it in little fragments all over town, but nobody's put it all together. Um, and, um, and there's that, and there's also the remembering of the book. I mean, because the book's not just about the circle. There are also chapters about old girlfriends and um, trips out west and trips to England and trying to find a way to balance a single place with all your memories of places um, that you bring to that place. Um, I had a funny, um, I met Paul Shepard and picked him up at the airport in 1978 um, at the Power of Animals conference in Port Townsend, and I was so enthralled because I, I loved Thinking Animals, that book, so much that I nearly killed him coming back from the airport. I nearly ran us into a bridge abutment, and I think he, he never recovered from that trip back from the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he also he wrote a book, a great uh, called Sacred Paul. Yes. That yeah. bears. So yeah, really a great wonderful. bear book. Wonderful bear book. Yeah. yeah, really. Are there any bears where you are? Um, there will be, and there, there has been... Um, there's an occasional juvenile bear that will wander down from the mountains and and get caught um, in the suburbs near where we live. But I, I've predicted in my column that within our lifetimes we'll see bears moving up and black bears moving up and down the, 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 the creeks in Spartanburg. There's no reason they won't come there. I mean, they're in New Jersey. <laughs> they're they're 35 miles away right. in great numbers. Yeah. I'm speaking with John Lane. He's the author of Circling Home. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm speaking with John Lane. He's the author of Circling Home. And again, let me give you a website, kudzutelegraph.com. That's K-U-D-Z-U, telegraph.com. And John has a weekly column there, and among other things. So check it out, kudzutelegraph.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, and that's newdimensions.org. So I want to talk about this. Uh, this is pre-Betsy, uh, <laughs> Mexico, girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Tell us about this story. Well, um, I, I, once again, it sort of starts as sort of an academic story. I got a grant from the college, and um, I was going to develop a series of um, journal entries for traveling. And I, I sort of wrote this up to get this money. And then I, I left Spartanburg um, and drove all the way to Oregon without driving a mile on an interstate highway by myself with my boat and my bike on my truck. This, this was back in the early 90s. And, um, and then I, I went from there down to Mexico and met up with some, some um, herpetologist friends of mine, some snake and lizard hunters um, in a town called Alamos. And there also was a, was a former um, professor there um, that I knew. And, and we, we got together and started traveling together. And, and we, we had this, um, we had this, this story about this, this magic canyon <laughs> somewhere out there. And, um, and, um, and so, um, so we, we set out together in this rink, in this old car and me traveling, following this old car of hers in my pickup truck. And we were 30 miles off the road. Talk about it being in the weeds before we finally, a couple of floods and people That's giving us the wrong directions. Anyway, right. Yeah. But this was, we, we went up at one point a dry riverbed for 25 miles. That's how far off we were. And, um, then we find this canyon and, um, we, we're going to start into this canyon, do a full day hike into this canyon. And before we even get into the mouth of the canyon, I'm stung by a wasp and have a little bit of a reaction. And so, um, my friend heads in. Um, <laughs> she waited to make sure you're okay. She waited to make sure I was okay. And then she, when she saw I wasn't going to die of shock, she, um, she heads in and comes out later and she brings, brings out a couple of things she's found and gives them to me. And, and, and they in some ways just become, um, little signpost for heading back to, to settle. Um, um, it's a piece of pottery and, and just the story she has of, of going to this canyon. And it sort of deepens my sense that Mexico is, is, is the, the place of change for me. I've been there many times and I've written about it a good bit. But every time I go there, I always come back headed in another direction. Yeah. What do you think that is? What do you think causes that? I, I think it's... Um, I think it's how I think it's the the different um it's it's a different um it's a different place obviously it's a place with different vegetation and different and different animals um it's a place that um I always go on the hunt I'm hunting for something I'm hunting for stories or I'm hunting for for animals with these friends of mine who are scientists um and and because I go in there with that frame of mind, I think I'm ready for to change in Mexico. I wrote a whole series of poems once about about Mexico, and it's just a place that's always um, always seemed alive to me in a way that that um, other spots are not. I think if I had to go, if I if you told me that I only could travel in one country the rest of my life, it would be Mexico. So, what's your favorite place in Mexico? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I think place that I went with Betsy and the boys um, a couple years ago. We went um, we went kayaking um, in the in the mountains um, west of Tampico, um, a small um, a, a small outfitters um, camp 
on a river there, and the river um, is Travertine Waterfalls. So we we did nothing but paddle these beautiful jewel-like waterfalls for a week, and it was just a remarkable time. Yeah. West of Tampico. West sounds of like Tampico, yes. Sounds like a title. That's a good title. <laughs> West of Tampico. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some some John Wayne Westerners. Yeah. Yeah. So another story, this is a great story. I just love this one. And speaking of golf, uh, yeah. the, uh, David, your friend David. So t- tell us about David. Well, when, when I um, was putting this book together, I had to figure out how I was going to, I didn't realize the country club was going to be such a big part of the book. Um, the last, next to last chapters, all about it as well, but it's within the circle. Yeah. It's within part of it's within the circle, not the whole club, but, a, but the, the, Three or four holes are within the circle of the golf course. And so um, Betsy said, you know, you, you don't play golf, but you've got to get onto that golf course somehow. And so I remembered that I had a, a best friend in college, and he had been a fabulous golfer in Spartanburg. And that the guys that he played with in high school were still here and still playing golf every Saturday. And this is 35 years ago. And then David had not played golf much Maybe one time, but he'd been a really good golfer. He'd been he's been an uh, oh, he would still be flying and playing on some some seniors tour right now had he continued to play. But he had a fallen out with a college coach at Wofford, and he just stopped, quit golf, and it probably opened up for him the space to become a world class scientist, which he is today. Um, but he stopped playing golf. He maybe hit a few balls, maybe played around, but he didn't play golf. So I called him up and I said, David. I want you to come back and I want you to bring your old 30-year-old clubs and I want you to play golf with these guys you used to beat like a drum in high school. And he agreed to do it. And he showed up and with his ponytail. He looks he looks just like um, Sean Connery in The Medicine Man, you know, <laughs> bald head and ponytail. And um, he shows up in these shorts with these hiking boots and this ponytail and these golf clubs that are 30 years old. And the guys just have a blast making fun of him. Um, and... He gets out there and he outdrives them all. He's got a two iron. Yes, he's got. Is that is that funny? Yeah, right? yeah, that is funny. Yeah, he's got a two iron and they can't get over this. But his his long game is great, but his short game is awful. So um, so he had, he had a good time and they told David stories the entire time around the golf course. Right. It was also there was this thing about the tees. It were. <laughs> Yeah, uh, corn, corn teas, corn teas. Yeah, they have a great time talking about these um these biodegradable teas that one of them has, and whether it not. And one of the guys is a wood product salesman, so he, they're back and forth about whether you know if we get lost, we can eat the teas and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and you made the comment. It was a kind of a, uh, a caustic comment that well, the wood teas will take eleven hundred years to decompose, and the the corn teeth will take a thousand years to decompose. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny. Little things like that came up all the time when I was writing this and book. And there was this other thing when David first stepped up to, to hit the ball, and he has this little two iron, of course, and now golf has developed technology that two iron is kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a passing It's like club. an atlatl. <laughs> right, yeah, right. So, and he comes up and he hits the ball, and of course, it's like straight as an arrow yeah. and out there a, a yeah. country mile. yeah. Yeah. He's strong and he's a great athlete. And like I said, he'd still be playing golf somewhere if he had not started catching salamanders. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so then, so in walking the golf course, there, that used to be farmland. Yeah. Right. It was yeah. a farm. It was a, yeah. Uh, used to be a farm, used to be, um, um, used to be way out in the country. Um, used to be on the on the trolley line to yeah, Glendale. Yeah, the trolley. That's it. The trolley yeah, line. Yeah, the trolley line to Glendale, and all these things are layered in this spot. 
Um, there was that whole story about um, about who designed the golf course, and um, the, the the club sort of has this myth that it was designed by this famous golf course designer, and um, and and um, trying to figure out what the club's going to become now because golf country clubs are kind of, um, I mean, in some ways they're an obsolete organization in a community. And um, I think they're they're all coming to terms with that, trying to figure out how they can be something um, today. This club actually, I think it was 1925, it closed down. And then there was like 10, 10 of the major mover and shaker men. Uh, yeah, yeah. The area came together and decided what we're going to do with this. Reinvented the club. Reinvented the club. I think the Depression's what what did it in. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably hard to have a golf club in Spartanburg, South Carolina in 1928. <laughs> with, <laughs> with sand greens. I love that. The whole idea that all the greens were sand. Yeah. Yeah. All the greens were sand. All the greens were made of were just smooth sand. No grass. And now they're trying to now it's so expensive to to keep up with the technology of grass that um clubs clubs are struggling to um, to keep people playing because everybody wants the the newest grass rather than nobody's going to play on sand greens anymore. The greens were sand for the first ten or twelve years or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so so what what what's lighting your fire these days? Um, in May I will haul my canoe to the edge of our property and by myself put my boat in the water and paddle to the ocean. It's going to take me two weeks and I'm going to try to write a book about water in the South and how it is that we've always thought the West was this place that had water problems. And now we've had these prolonged droughts and global warming and all these things. And suddenly water has become a huge issue in the Southeast. And so I'm going to float from Spartanburg to the Atlantic Ocean and I'm going to consider the problem of water. And that's that's what's lighting my fire right now. I'm reading about water and trying to figure out um, what I'm going to say about how I'm going to reflect on these issues. And I don't know what's going to happen to me on the trip. That'll be fun. I've done part of this trip before. I paddled from Spartanburg to Columbia, South Carolina with some friends about three years ago to just sort of prepare for this trip. But I'm going to do this one by myself. So I've circled home and grounded myself in this spot. And now I'm going to float out toward the Atlantic Ocean. So are there any rapids on this trip? No, there are nine dams. Um, and there are actually some rapids. The same, I'll go under the tree that nearly killed me um, in this book. That'll be an interesting um, spot. Re, re, yeah, re, re-experience. I'm going to wait till the water's very low <laughs> <laughs> before I paddle down this, this river by myself. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's. So you have um, to portage the dams. You have to portage the dams. I've checked all the portage routes. They're pretty easy to do. I'm going to have to figure out the food situation. I just finished reading Wallace Stegner's Beyond the 100th Meridian, and um, my trip's not going to be anything like John Wesley Powell's trip. I'm not going to have <laughs> a, a half a bag <laughs> of spoiled flour by the time I get to the to the coast. But I'm going to have to figure the food thing out. And the, and the coffee thing. I'm going to have to have coffee with me, so I have to figure that out. <laughs> John, it's been great talking with you. There's a lot more we could cover with times that we're, up, we're over time here. Thank you, Michael. It's been great, great being here. I've been speaking with John Lane, and he's the author of Circling Home. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, kudzutelegraph.com. That's K-U-D-Z-U, telegraph.com, kudzutelegraph.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
My name is Michael Toms. I'm wishing you lots of time to just hang out. This is program number 3254. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts, find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive, and access many other resources for conscious living. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.